Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Hi, this is Dan Miller, and we're going to take care of business in a variety of ways today. I just got back from a conference out in Portland, Oregon. Uh, Some of you have asked about that. It was a Donald Miller conference on living a better story. Donald has written a couple books, and a couple of people have questions about those we'll address today. He wrote Blue Like Jazz, which is probably his most famous book, selling now about one and a half million copies. Then he wrote a book a couple years ago titled, well, actually about a year ago, titled A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. Now, Don tends to have kind of unusual book titles, but in that he talked about writing a life story. He realized that uh, the life he was living was pretty boring, not really very interesting. And he decided, why didn't he write his life out like a book, like a movie script in advance and then live it out? So the conference really had to do with that. Now, there are a lot of things that revolve around a concept like that. And people struggle with the principles. You know, can I, in fact, decide what I want my life to be? Is that somehow superseding God's will? Am I just a puppet here? You know, how do we get through all these things? So I think we're going to have kind of a theme for today's podcast with those questions being asked. You'll see how they run through of the entire context of today's show. So I'm going to start out with a question that deals with that, and we're going to just blaze right through some of the principles in looking at, you know, are we just pawns here on earth, or do we really have the option to be in the driver's seat in our lives? How do we flesh those things out? Now, you're going to hear a lot of my opinion, obviously. That's uh, all I have to offer. The opinion is based on Lots of reading that I've done over the years, both both in theology and self-help and motivational kind of materials. I try to read a broad array of things that address this topic because it's so pervasive. It's something that I'm so interested in in my own life. So we're going to do a little unpacking of that. Well, just to start off, reminding you of some of the things that we've got going on here. A lot, a lot of you are getting involved in 48days.net. I love seeing your involvement there. The activity has uh, surpassed what I'm able to keep up with, but we've got a great advisory team that stays on top of things that are happening there. But I see new people coming in, getting involved, sharing ideas, asking for advice from others, and then listing events that you've got coming up. All those things are available on a no-cost forum. It's pretty amazing what technology has allowed all, all of us to experience at this point. We do not have any more live events scheduled at the Sanctuary. A lot of you are asking about those. You can go to the live events link and see the events that are scheduled for 2011 at this point. The entire year's schedule is up there. We've got some blanks in particular months because those will be devoted to travel and writing that uh, both Joanne and I are doing. But you can certainly see the events there. We'd love to hear from you and love to see your plans made in advance. You know, one of the things that we see in successful people is they make plans farther in advance. Now, you know how that works. If somebody's making eight bucks an hour, they think week to week. That's about it. But as people's income goes up, they start to think in five and 10 year increments. So you ought to be planning out what you want the next year to look like. Now's the time to decide, not just have January 1st 
click around and all of a sudden it's, oh my gosh, you know, here's another year and I'm caught in my own version of Groundhog Day. I'm probably going to just repeat what happened last year. No, be deciding now what you want your next year to look like. And that ought to include the kind of events that you're going to do. Well, here's a question. Let me just jump right into the questions. This comes from Windermere, Florida. What are your thoughts on the law of attraction? The thought that many self-improvement writers seem to forward. Being a Christian, it makes me uneasy as if it's some sort of magic. Now, this writer has a blog where he made some comments, and I looked through there. He's reading Think and Grow Rich, the old Napoleon Hill book, classic, been around. But in that, he talks about the law of attraction. He talks about the universal force. And if we put our thoughts out, they're going to come back to us. I mean, put together in a way that most people today would frame as kind of new age. But what do we do with that? I mean, do we just dismiss that? What are we left with if we do? I mean, the principles that we see there seem to have a common theme in all of history's writings. That includes the Bible. When I was impacted so dramatically by The Strangest Secret by Earl Nightingale when I was a little 13-year-old Mennonite farm kid living in Ohio, I mean, it had a dramatic effect on my life. Well, the principle is primarily we become what we think about. Does that sound like something you've ever heard anyplace else? Yes, it's very much like the biblical principle. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. But it is, in fact, the law of attraction. We become what we think about. And we've seen that in the writings of Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich, certainly. The popular movie a couple years ago, The Strangest Secret. I mean, it's heavy into that. People like Michael Beckwith, who was in that movie clip. And then we see it, we see it resurface in the writings of Wayne Dyer, Deepak Chopra. Um, A lot of people who Christians would be a little concerned about reading, and yet I do read all of those. I read all of those because it's easy to see the common themes in Scripture as well as in the writings of other people who may not be considered frontline mainstream Christians. So I don't do a whole lot of throwing the baby out with the bath. I do a lot of sorting to try to find the good in there, and then I see things played out, and I see how have people accomplished big dreams had they just sat back and waited to see what was going to happen in their lives how their lives were going to unfold no i don't see that occurring people who do that tend to live lives of mediocrity and never really accomplish much those who do have big dreams tend to take the bull by the horns they somehow just step up there i was reminded again of this clip you'll recognize it instantly I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. Well, you recognize that as I do. 
Martin Luther King, what has come from the passion of that dream that he had? I mean, how our history has been rewritten in many ways. I mean, I like it when people have big dreams. I mean, I like it when they step out and say, you know what, I'm going to do something that I've never done before. So I, I don't throw out the theology, the philosophy, the psychology, however you want to frame theologies of people trying to do new things. Now, certainly, if you're a Christian, you can screen that. You ought to have discernment. You ought to have wisdom so that you can frame that in a way that lines up with your faith where it doesn't violate that. But uh, we do need to exercise some of the principles laid out in things like Think and Grow Rich and The Strangest Secret, because I think a lot of times we just cut ourselves off too short for what the possibilities are. The principles can be framed within our faith to stretch our thinking, to decide where we want to be. I mean, this is still going to all be monitored by the gifts God has given us, but also by the vision God has given us. I mean, Psalms tells us where there's no vision, the people perish. I mean, don't apologize for having big dreams. Don't apologize for wanting to do something that you've never done before. And if that seems like it's stretching your faith, I hope it does stretch your faith. I mean, faith by definition is going somewhere we've never been before. Not being able to see what's up ahead, but being willing to take that next step. I mean, if everything was predictable just kind of laid out in advance, faith would be an inoperative word. We wouldn't need faith. We just do what's obvious. Well, I don't like to live my life doing what's obvious. I'm inspired by people who do something new and unique. Check this out. Here's another example. Recognize this as Susan Boyle. The things that you she had a dream as well. Well, I bought them for you. Graceless lady. Well, you know, I'm inspired by things like that. Now, you know the story there, Susan Boyle, rather plain-looking lady, Britain lady, who got on one of the shows, sang her song, I Dreamed a Dream, from Les Mis, but has gone on to produce the, uh, the, the 
all-time best-selling album of last year, which just blows my mind. What uh, you just heard a clip from there was Wild Horses, the old Rolling Stones song. Her first album was just the songs that inspired her as a little girl and growing into adulthood, the songs that gave her a dream to hang on to. Man, I am inspired by those kind of things. I don't want to take those away. I think we all ought to have those things that we're stretching for, things that stretch us to new areas. I, I, I'm i at the point where a lot of my peers are, are looking at retirement or already have retired. And, boy, that has absolutely zero appeal for me. Zero. I can't imagine getting up in the morning and not having anything constructive to do. Now, I'm sure that's part of how I'm wired, but I, it just is what it is. But retirement has zero appeal to me. I mean, it has nothing to do with financial needs. I mean, if I have things in place where income will continue because of book royalties and so on, I mean, it doesn't have any effect on the fact that I want to continue having something that I'm reaching for every day. I mean, I'm so excited about things that I have planned out for next year. I can't sit in my chair half the time. And I'm bringing on some extra help to help make those things possible because there's so much that I want to accomplish. Well, I hope you're doing the same. And when you read things, read things, be sure that you do read things that stretch your thinking. But but stretch your thinking in terms of making you think in ways that you perhaps have not thought before. It scares me when people narrow their reading, listening, their friends and associates down to a very small niche where everything is very predictable, where there's total consensus. I mean, golly, one of the strengths of my Wednesday morning group that you hear me talk about a lot, and we talked about it yesterday morning, I gave them an article in praise of dissent. And I talked about the power of dissent, and we talked about the strength of our group is that we rarely all agree on anything. Now, we all have some things in common in terms of our faith, in terms of our business and economic values and so on and so forth. But but really, when it comes right down to it, we have a lot of dissension. Now, that's not seen as a negative thing. We just simply have a lot of different opinions. We have no illusions about making everybody else in the room agree with us. But it, we, it strengthens. I mean, research shows that when there is diversity, it strengthens ultimate decisions rather than when there's just nothing but consensus. We continue to see big leaders who fell because they got to the point where nobody gave them honest feedback anymore. Nobody challenged their decisions. And ultimately, their whole house of cards came crashing down. It's a dangerous position to be in if nobody's ever challenging your ideas or your opinions. If nobody is, you need to be looking for new centers of influence, new people who are willing to challenge you and see that as a positive because it'll make your ultimate ideas and plans much stronger. Well, let me go on to the questions. Joe says, Dan, I've been listening to your podcast and read No More Mondays. My question is, would taking a job for less money, but with a company that is more interesting to work for and in a location I want to move to make sense? The new location, the cost of housing is less. Sure. I have no problem with that at all. I mean, when we talk about meaningful work, yes, it should be purposeful and profitable. But if you find something that you really want to do and your needs are such that you can make that work financially and it's less money. I mean, a lot of people are doing there's a term that we call downward mobility. 
I mean, I've worked with a lot of dentists and physicians and engineers and accountants who have decided, you know what? I'm doing great financially, but I hate the life I've created. I don't want to do this anymore. And so we have physicians that become artists or UPS drivers. Absolutely. If it fits in terms of the life that you want, then go ahead and do it. You don't have to feel guilty because you've moved into a position where the compensation is less than something in a previous previous life. I mean, that's a that's a fallacy we get into that really harms our children's generation. I mean, what do you do when kids of baby boomers come along and mom and dad have knocked it out of the park with an IPO or dad's a cardiologist or something? And then the kid says, gee, I really want to be a, a carpenter or a landscape designer or a musician where there's not likely that they will make the kind of money that mom or dad made. Well, we need to embrace that uniqueness in our children. I mean, Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up a child in the way he should go to, and when he's old and not depart from it. That doesn't mean we cram theological principles down their throat. It means we embrace the unique ways they are bent. I mean, that's really in a more accurate rendering of that verse in terms of translation. So if you have a child that is bent to be um, to design bicycles or to grow dandelions or to you know, be a wood sculptor, that we need to embrace those unique skills instead of trying to force them to outdo our generation in terms of having more and doing more. Now, we all want to stretch personally, but we've misdirected a lot of talented kids by um, giving them medication to calm their creativity and make them sit in a classroom. I mean, I cringe sometimes to think how many Michelangelo's or Thomas Edison's we've missed because we gave them Ritalin rather than deal with the uniqueness that they brought to the table. Let me go on. Patrick says, Dan... Love your podcast. I want to start a financial bookkeeping business. I've been in corporate accounting for 20 years. Really feel I would do well. My question is how to get the word out to small businesses in my area that I'm available. There are many competitors. How do I distinguish myself? Patrick, you just simply have to do something that uh, makes you stand out, something that gives you top of mind positioning. Now, in marketing, we know that repetition sells. I mean, little kids recognize the golden arches before they can read because they see it so many times and associate it with going to McDonald's. So if you have $1,000 to spend in advertising, as an example, you would not want to spend $1,000 once. You spend $333 three times. So repetition is key. So you ought to be able to identify perhaps 70 or 80 companies right near you that would be candidates for your financial bookkeeping business. Do something where they see or hear about you three times. So that could be a personal visit where you drop in. It could be sending them a flyer. It could be with email addresses, you know, send them a note. It could be a follow-up phone call. Do something where they see or hear about you three times and you're going to fill your schedule real quickly. You take the initiative on this. You don't wait until a company says, gee, I need somebody to do our bookkeeping. No, you identify what are the characteristics of companies that would fit a perfect target profile. You contact them. If you do that, making it at least three times, you're going to fill your schedule and not have to do much marketing for the next couple of years. Paul says, on a recent podcast, you mentioned wanting ways to help scan through the loads of email you get. Why not hire a fan? Someone who knows your work well could answer common questions, refer emails to the proper people. 
pass on that which would mean the most to you. They'd funnel the right questions to make your podcast stellar. I'd volunteer. Well, thanks, Paul. I appreciate your offer for that. I, we, we get so many offers of help, and we do engage the services of people. I mean, Jody Smith takes the podcast that we do here. People were asking for, if I just want to see question number five, and I want to hear that, how can I get to that? Well, I didn't have any format where that's available. He makes that available, where you can go right to one question and listen just to the question and answer. He does that as a volunteer. I've had people offer to transcribe the podcast to make that available as well. And we'll probably do that. In terms of the daily emails, the challenge is that so many of the emails are so personal that it's hard for me just to farm those out. Inasmuch as I would love to just have them go through systems, I feel obligated with a lot of them where people really share their heart's desires. Now, a lot of those are answered by other people. Uh, Missy and Ashley, my daughter, do a lot of corresponding. I probably see 5% of what's com- what comes in that, that's directed to me. So we certainly at this point already have systems in place. But uh, we are bringing on some additional help to structure the business systems in our company, giving me more time just to create content and write. And I'm excited about that, but that means that even more so, it's going to be difficult for me to respond personally to the emails. And I'm challenged by that. I'm delighted with the increasing opportunities that I have, but that's still not an easy thing to handle when somebody writes and uh, wants to connect with me personally. Still not an easy thing to do. Um, And I'm always looking for ways to do that more efficiently and and with continued compassion. Amy says, Dan, you often refer to the value you place on reading. How do you keep track of or condense the ideas you glean from reading? I will admit that I come across many more ideas than I actually implement. What systems do you use to put a new idea into place? Well, that's a great question because you hear me talk a lot about the value I put on reading. I love to read. I read a lot. And I just added, I just got back from a trip. And of course, on the trip, had some airplane time. And in that finished a couple more books. I just um, just wrote on my list. I do t- keep track of the books I read each year, and I just put on the list number 48 uh, for the year. So this is, what is this week? Let's see, we're at the end of September, so that's nine months. So we're at about 32, 33 weeks. I've read 48 books. So I read about a book and a half a week on average, I guess. I just The last book I read was Max Lucido's brand new book, Outlive Your Life. What was recommended to me and had to do with doing things that are worthwhile, things that will leave a legacy. So I I read that. um, I think I did read that in one of the plane connections that I had going to Portland. But um, well, here's what I do with my reading. And I like to read the physical book. Yeah, you know, with Kindle and the iPad and all that. I mean, there's a lot of other ways. But I still, I love to have the book in my hand. It's a little more cumbersome, especially when I'm traveling like that. But I just still like the look and feel of a book. Now, I'm adding to that, and certainly I'm putting books that I really value, that I want to have access to instantly into an electronic format so I don't have to always be dependent on coming back to 
my office as I talk about opportunities for writing in remote locations. And then I realize, wow, I want to draw from this particular book. Yeah, I want to have that with me. So an iPad is certainly adding to my ability to do that. But here's what I typically do with a book. I read through it. I, do, I read pretty quickly. I read about a page a minute in most books. But I also use a highlighter and little tiny post-it notes. Now, you can get the little kind that are only about a quarter of an inch wide. And I use a lot of those. And what I do is I tag the pages that had the real core concepts that leaped out at me from that particular book. So I may have 10 or 15 in a typical book. So I read it, have my pages tagged with content that in the process of underlining and tagging it made a more indelible impression in my mind to start with. So those are things that I'm not going to remember. I mean, I can pull content from books that I read 10 years ago because there are phrases in there, concepts that I've used over and over again. And they're still really relevant and still really top of mind for me. <clears throat> but what I do then is put the book on my shelf and then three years from now, I can come back, and if I'm writing on a particular topic or want a blog, I'll pull a book off, and I can, in five minutes, see the content in that book that would impress me in my first reading. Now, there's some books that I read every six months or so, books like Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl. I think it just helps me keep grounded in principles that I want to be reminded of, that we choose our attitude, even if circumstances are not what we want them. But that's how I do it. I, I read, I underline, I highlight, put it on a shelf, and then I can pull it out. And because of the little post-it notes, I can very quickly reference the material that impressed me as being very important. Thanks for your question, Amy. I love to talk about reading and how it can change your life. And if there is one thing that I think can change your life more quickly than anything, it's to increase your reading. Again, if you want a list of my reading recommendations, you can get that. Just shoot a, an email to reading at 48days.com. You'll get an autoresponder. It takes you right to the page where I highlight the books that I think are just uh, most important to uh, be on a path that fulfill your dreams. Josh says, I used to te teach music at a Christian school and loved it. While I was there, I completed my schooling, took another teaching job at a public school. That job was eliminated after two years, and now I struggle to find work. I feel like God is punishing me for leaving my calling in the Christian school setting. Well, Josh, I appreciate your heart in this, but I don't for a minute think that God is punishing you because you went from a Christian school to another school. I mean, I don't think God that micromanages us like little chess pieces. I don't think he, frankly, I'm not sure that he cares a whole lot, whether you're in a Christian school or another school. That may sound heretical to some, but I really don't. I mean, there are larger concepts that God is interested in you living out, but those little day-to-day -day decisions, you have a lot of freedom and will, free will, to choose to make those. So I don't think those are really big issues in the scheme of life. I don't think there is one specific decision you need to make about careers, even. I mean, and certainly when it comes down to you go out and you're going to buy a new Chevy, you know, does God care if it's green or blue? Nope, I don't think he does. I don't think, that, I think it's ridiculous to, to, seek God's guidance for decisions like that. Just act. Now, there are a lot of reasons to cheat, to move from a Christian school to another academic institution. A lot of people have realized they couldn't be the financial providers that they needed to be for their family, which is one person working by teaching at a school, even if it's a worthwhile thing to do. And so they move somewhere where they can double or triple their income. 
I think a lot of times it's a healthy thing to do in that particular kind of example. So, no, I, I don't think that you can beat yourself up. I mean, you could you could have made a decision to go the other way. You were teaching in another kind of public school and got your education, and then you went to work at a Christian school, and that Christian school didn't survive. So now you've been without work for a year. Is that God's punishment? You could make a case in reverse just as easily, and I think there's no rationale for assuming that God has punished you in this. It still comes back to... How are you going to do a job search? How are you going to find work that's meaningful, fulfilling? And when we recognize there's a whole lot of people in the workplace right now who are looking for new opportunities. We have about 15 million unemployed people, and that includes a whole lot of people who left their jobs voluntarily. I mean, it's not just because of layoffs that people are in the in the mix, in the job search. I mean, in the second quarter of 2010, we had more people quit their jobs voluntarily than were fired or laid off. And that's a pretty startling stat, and it means that people realize they're not trapped. They have new options. Just put yourself into a good job search. Define clearly what it work is you're looking for, and you can accomplish it. Julie says, what would you say to someone who considers themselves an exception to guidelines for finding their purpose through their skills, personality, and passions? Some biblical characters seem like exceptions, such as Moses, who was slow of speech, or Joshua, who struggled with fear. Does God love exceptions, or does he see in us what we can't see in ourselves? Well, golly, I think both. Those are great phrases. I think God loves exceptions, and there's a whole lot of exceptions. You know, we, we all are an exception. If you just fit into a very predictable pattern, uh, life probably isn't very exciting. We all look for those things that make us unique and that allow us to realize we don't fit into neat patterns. We're too individualized. I mean, we're like snowflakes. No two people are alike. We can look for general things that we may have in common, but when it comes right down to it, we're very unique. And that's the exciting thing about finding or creating work that matters. It's a very personalized, very individualized process. And in doing that, you embrace those things that are unique about you. So be happy that you are, if you're slow of speech or like Joshua struggled with fear, recognize those are unique things that can be used in powerful ways as well. Ryan says, I have an idea for an invention. I've heard you talk about this before, but I don't remember what was said. Can you give some resources where I can start? My idea is a simple cleaning product. What about patents versus trademarks? Thank you. Let me read you a note. Another reader, Don, sent in. Don, I appreciate you sharing this. Don says, Dan, I want to share this short excerpt from Ben Franklin's autobiography. So many potential inventors whose letters you read seem terrified of losing their idea to others. They should take a page from the life of Ben Franklin. Now, this was written by Ben Franklin, and it's a couple paragraphs. It's worth reading. Ben Franklin, who invented a lot of things, says, In order of time, I should have mentioned before that having in 1742 invented an open stove for the better warming of rooms and at the same time saving fuel as the fresh air admitted was warmed and entering, I made a present of the model to Mr. Robert Grace, one of my early friends, who having an iron furnace found the casting of the plates for these stoves a profitable thing as they were growing in demand. To promote that demand, I wrote and published a pamphlet entitled An Account of the New Invented Pennsylvania Fireplaces, 
wherein their construction and manner of operation is particularly explained, their advantages above every other method of warming rooms demonstrated, and all objections that have been raised against the use of them answered and obviated. And obviated. <laughs> this pamphlet had a good effect. Governor Thomas was so pleased with the construction of this stove as described in it that he offered to give me a patent for the sole bending of them for a term of years, but I declined it from a principle which has ever weighed with me on such occasions, namely, that as we enjoy great advantages from the inventions of others, we should be glad of an opportunity to serve others by an invention of ours, and this we should do freely and generously. An ironmonger in London, however, assuming a good deal of my pamphlet and working it up on his own and making some small changes in the machine, which rather hurt its operation, got a patent for it there and made, as I was told, a little fortune by it. This is not the only instance of patents taken out from my inventions by others, though not always with the same success, which I never contested, as having no desire of profiting by patents myself and hating disputes. The use of these fireplaces in very many houses, both of this and the neighboring colonies, has been and is a great saving of wood to the inhabitants. Now, that not that a great piece? Here's Ben Franklin, who's saying, you know, I'm not really concerned about a patent for my inventions. I just want people to benefit from it. And if I have the opportunity to have something that's beneficial to people, that's a great reward. Now, trust me. You can do that in a way that brings you monetary success as well. But I'll I'll go back to Ryan's question about a simple cleaning product, and he's wondering about patents or trademarks. Patents, I suspect, for your simple cleaning product. Now, if this is like a scrub brush or something like that, then it's certainly going to be a design patent, not a utility patent. And as such, really doesn't hold a lot of weight to get a patent. You're better off just to go ahead, just have fun, just get out here and sell it. The strength of your idea, the power of the idea financially is in selling it, not in trying to protect the idea. Frankly, I think protecting the idea is about 2% of the idea. And the rest of it is in getting out here and marketing it. That's where you're going to have the strength of your idea. So market it. Don't be concerned about protecting it. If you have something that's a chemical compound for cleaning, then that may, in fact, lend itself to a utility patent. But I I doubt that's really the direction that you're going. You can get a trademark if you want to. And a trademark means that you give your super-duper cleaning brush a a name like that. So it's the Scrididor or whatever. So giving it a name and trademarking the name does have some value, and it helps create a brand for you. And I would recommend that you check that out. You can do that yourself. Go to USPTO.gov, and that's USPTO.gov. That's the United States Patent and Trademark Office. And you can do a little research yourself to see if there's anything else like that and to trademark then ultimately the name that you choose. That does have value. Patents are a questionable line for you to go with what you're describing here, and I would suggest you don't waste your time and money. Jeff says, Dan, here's me on the disc. I'm a high C. Um, top strength finders, themes, learner, relater. I enjoy the process of learning and discovery more than actually using new knowledge. I've also discovered I enjoy the process of creating, such as PowerPoint presentations and working on my website. I'm currently doing financial coaching on the side while I work my 40-hour job as an assistant to a financial advisor. 
I've discovered I'm easily drained by doing one-on-one coaching, and my J-O-B as an office geek doesn't energize me either. Now, he had a grandfather. I'll go through kind of a synopsis here. Grandfather died at age 93. And at the funeral, I realized all the events he lived through that I never asked about. So he says, would it be, would it have value if I interviewed elderly people, people in their 70s, 80s, and 90s about their life stories? Could recording people's life stories be monetized? Would I sell the original recording or keep the original, sell copies? How could I generate repeat business? Would I target the people to be interviewed or their children for whom the recording would benefit? And so on. What are your thoughts? Does this sound like a viable business idea? Well, Jeff, yeah, it is. I mean, it's a great idea. Now, be careful in shaping this. Work yourself through not only to having great content, but go quickly to the marketing side. What are you going to do to market what you're describing? That is how you're going to have to do this. Now, an example of this is going to be Mike Senoff's material. If you go to hardtofindseminars.com, I think that's his website, hardtofindseminars.com, you're going to see thousands and thousands and thousands of interviews with people, both young and old, you know, historical characters, celebrities, lesser known people, and so on. Now, certainly, if you have a recording and it was done with Napoleon Hill or Earl Nightingale or Norman Vincent Peale or Tony Robbins or Wayne Dyer or Brian Tracy or Zig Ziglar, I mean, the names, the popularity of those people are going to get you more traffic. And and I might insert here, you really might be surprised how easy it is to get famous people to do interviews with you. I mean, I find celebrities and people who have had out-of-the-park success extremely open-handed about giving advice, opinions, and interviews, even if they know that material is going to be turned into a product that you're going to attempt to sell. I mean, I've, I've, I'm certainly no celebrity and or famous, but I've had a lot of people ask me about that, and usually they're surprised by my response. Rather than having some kind of a joint venture where we share profits or whatever, I tell them, no, just go ahead and do it. And I'm happy to do that. If you, if you can go out here and sell things successfully where we've done recorded interviews, just go ahead and do it. So you're going to have to have a clear plan. Okay, who is this going to appeal to? How are you going to make this engaging enough with the other content that is out there, the wealth of wisdom that we have already in recorded form and in books? I mean, in the public domain, there's a lot of areas out there where we have a lot of what you're talking about. So how are you going to make this stand out? What you might include in your business plan is just taking some of the material that's already readily available and seeing if you can market that before you go through the work that would be involved in getting original recordings with new people. You can become a distributor for content or find content that is in the public domain where you pay nothing for it. And then your challenge just is how can you market that effectively. I mean, there are people like Rebecca Fine who has taken an old, old book written by Wallace Waddles back in 1910 titled The Science of Getting Rich. She has built her entire business on that one book that was in the public domain. So she has audio recordings of that. She has workbooks and seminars, things you can do to kind of expand the knowledge from that one book. But that's all she's done is just that one book. And I think it's a delightful business model. So getting the content is not the unique component, though, of what I just described. 
having a business model where she then blogs about it and she does seminars and she speaks. She does things to drive traffic back to her site where people then get engaged, get involved. That's going to be your challenge on this as well. So getting the content is not the real key component. Your ability to create a marketing plan is. And when you describe yourself as a high C, you're already implying that you don't enjoy the marketing side. And, but, but creating the content is not enough. Just as if you create a new software program, I mean, that's cool, but there's a whole lot of people that do that, that never, we never hear their names and they never put two nickels in the bank. Same thing is true of people who get patents. Talked about that a second ago. I mean, I know people who have 15, 20 patents, but they couldn't get 50 cents together if they needed to buy lunch because they've never understood the, the process of marketing the ideas for which they have patents. Help. This comes from Tulsa. Help. My husband's been been in a printing and mailing business for the last 15 years. Most of his work is with nonprofits and Christian organizations. With the downturn of the economy, his salary has been cut more than half. What do you see as the future of printing and where do we go from here? Well, you're right. Now, this, this is just a changing business. When you talk about being in the printing and mailing business for the last 15 years, I mean, it's not just the economy has changed or we're in a recession or however you want to frame it. Printing and mailing has changed dramatically. I mean, printing is done so quickly and efficiently and digitally, which removes the need for even having it done physically. Mailing, I mean, my goodness. I mean, I I go and get one little sheet of stamps about every three or four months. I mean, one little sheet. I mean, I don't even mail. I mean, uh, the the physical checks that we send as a company are probably three or four a month. Everything else is part of an electronic system where checks are sent out electronically. I mean, even there. And, and communicating with people. I mean, I can't remember the last time I wrote something and put it in an envelope because communication is done digitally. So those things have absolutely ripped apart the printing and mailing business. It's never going to come back and be what it was. The future of printing has changed forever. Now, is it going to go away? No, but we better reshape based on what the current trends are and where those are going. Now, what that may mean is that your husband needs to look for a new line of business. I mean, but you have to frame this in its proper way. If he has been working in the printing and mailing business, that lines up with being a job. But you have to back away from that. What is his vocation or calling? You know, what is he really trying to accomplish with his work? See, that doesn't need to change, but jobs will come and go. We can't avoid that. Jobs are going to come and go. No problem. We can't stop that process. It just is a feature of the world that we live in. But losing a job should never change your vocation, should never change your calling. So you need to back into that. What kind of work embraces fulfilling your calling? What kind of work embraces giving you the kind of life that you want to have? Then look for opportunities there. Now, certainly it's probably going to use some of the skills that he's refined and developed in the printing and mailing business, but to just keep pushing in that diminishing target is probably not something that is wise to do. Rob says, 
I have a friend who is in dire straits financially. In other words, he has too much month left at the end of his money. I've shared with him many of your principles and even your website link in hopes that he could draw some ideas of your from your low 48 low-cost business ideas. He has a tendency to default to defeatism. For example, I suggested that he visit businesses in person to apply for jobs, but he quickly responded that that method is not effective and that businesses will tell him to apply online. Let me, let me just, well, well, my, and then Rob says, my question is, can you share some examples on how effective these out of the box methods are that you recommend in your book? Furthermore, how can I encourage him? You know, when, when somebody defaults to defeatism, it's pretty stinking tough. I mean, you can't change him. You can't give him the desire to get different results. Something, he has to get to that point. Now, certainly you can be an encourager. You can challenge his thinking. You can give new ideas. And I commend you on doing all the above. But he has to break the mentality of defeatism because as we started out, today's program, I think we tend to end up pretty much where we expect to end up. I mean, that's been proven time and time again. So if you expect defeat, guess what? You're going to get defeat. The old Henry Ford adage, whether you think you can or think you can't, either way you're right, is very, very true. So if you think there are no jobs, if you think nobody's hiring, if you think walking in the front door is a method that will never work, guess what? Those things are all true for you. If, on the other hand, you think that because there are so many opportunities out there, you can choose whatever you want. And if you do things that are out of the ordinary, rather than just filling out resume requests online, you show up in the parking place at 642 a.m. where you know the president of the company parks and you say, golly, I've been wanting to talk to you. I thought this was a great way to meet you. I think I've got some skills that would really benefit your company. When could we chat for five minutes? I mean, you'll be amazed at the opportunities that show up if you do those kind of things. And yes, people do those repeatedly. Had a guy who got fired from a job, and rightfully so. I was part of the firing process in um, consulting with his boss and agreed that he should be fired. I won't go into that. But then he came to me to help him get a new job, which I did. And he needed to be fired, but he did he need a new opportunity? Absolutely. And in that, he was a marketing guy, creative marketing guy. He sent out his resume wrapped around an ear of corn. And then he did a takeoff on that where he said, oh, I'm sure you think this is corny, but just give me your ear. Oh, shucks. You know, let me talk to you for a minute. I mean, he got opportunities instantly. I mean, he got three or four opportunities much better than what he'd had previously. He's gone on. I won't tell you exactly what he's doing, but, but he's going on to start his own business and is just really having a great time and knocked it out of the park. But yeah, people need to do things that are interesting, that are creative, that are innovative. Incidentally, in 48 Days to the Work You Love, I talk about the fact that 40%, 47% of new jobs are secured by people simply walking in the front door of the business. Now, if it's a high-level job, that's going to be an unusual way to approach it. There are better ways to do it. But if you just need a job, you can do that. And for somebody to go through 48 low-cost business ideas, well, that's a free download at 48days.net, incidentally. You can go through there and just download that. If somebody goes through there, and at the end of that, I link to another list of 999 ideas and to another list of 101. I mean, so we're talking a couple thousand ideas there. 
And I've had people go through those and then tell me, well, Dan, you know, that that's good. But, you know, I'm in technology, so none of those applied to me. I think you got to be kidding me. You went through a thousand ideas and you couldn't figure out how to take 20 of those and use your skills and technology to make them, to give them a unique application to do something that's not been done before. I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, we tend to see what we expect we're going to see. I mean, I'm one of these guys, I wake up every morning, I worked with a gal just a couple of weeks ago, just had a brief conversation with her, I didn't work with her, but had a brief conversation and she described that she was really down to her last dollar, was in tears, she's a single mom, didn't know how she was going to make a mortgage payment and she was on the phone, she was going through mail and she was throwing away junk mail and she threw one away, it was from uh, like Liberty Mutual or an insurance company and she thought, well, that's a, a company I used to have insurance with but I canceled it. She pulled the envelope back out of the trash can while she was on the phone, opened it and it was a check for like $1,150 which was more, it was a refund for unused premiums from a company that she had canceled her insurance with and she was like, oh my gosh, you know I was at the very worst day I could have, and I got a miracle. And I said, I said, did you get up that morning expecting a miracle? She says, well, no, not really. And I says, you know what? I get up every single morning expecting a miracle. I really do. Hey, it may sound corny, but I really do. I get up expecting a miracle every morning. Well, you can hear from the music. We're at the end of our time. Dan Miller, your host here. It's my pleasure and privilege to connect with you in this way. I love getting your emails back in. You can complete that little form at the podcast section of our website, or you can just shoot an email to askdan at 48days.com. You can use the toll-free, or the, not toll-free, but a Google Voice number. To leave your question, we'll include some of those in here as well. I trust that you're enjoying this process of finding or creating the work that you love.